Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 2, again, verses 1 through 4. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1001. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just just retribution, how shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, indeed, we come before You humbly, asking you to remember your promise. You said that your word would not return to you void, and so we ask that by the ministry and power of your spirit, that it would bring forth a harvest of righteousness among us this morning, Father. May our minds be renewed. May our lives be transformed. And may we be fully equipped for every good work which you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. And for his name's sake, amen. In these verses, the author calls his readers to pay much closer attention. To pay much closer attention to that gospel which they had heard. The gospel of Jesus Christ which had been proclaimed to them by those who had heard. But why? Why must they pay much closer attention To this gospel, there are all sorts of things that that clamor for our attention. Why give our (coughs) closest attention? Why give our best attention to this gospel? And of course, the reason that he gives us is because of the dangers of drifting away. He fears that his readers will drift away from the gospel. He fears that they will forget it or even forsake it. That they will begin to live as if it were not actually true. That they would begin to live as if their life and their hope and their refuge were found elsewhere. That they would begin to live as unbelievers do. You see, he knows that their present circumstances, the the present persecution and and hardship that they are facing as disciples of Jesus Christ, a a hardship that that is only going to get worse in the days ahead. He fears that 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 persecution is tempting them to walk away from Jesus, to forget Him, to, to forsake Him, and to go back to their former faith, to go back to their former ways. And so he is pleading with them to to stand firm. He is pleading for them to remain unmoved from the hope of the gospel which they believed. And as we saw last Sunday, this is a call that we all need to hear because we all face this same temptation. 
We all face the, the temptation to, to seek out alternative saviors. We all face the temptation to put our, our hope and our trust in someone or, or something other than Jesus. So we all need to hear this call to stand firm in the hope of the gospel. This morning, what I want us to focus on is the way that the author grounds his appeal. We will see that he grounds his appeal to stand firm in the greatness of the gospel itself. Notice, we, notice how he asks it. He, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Think about the implications of that, that question. The author is, is clearly saying that the gospel is not simply one option among many. I like to read articles about productivity and, and efficiency. We only have so many hours of the day, and I, I want to make the best use of them that I can. And so I have read just any number of articles about how to to do that. And when you begin reading articles on, on efficiency and productivity, what you soon realize is that there are any number of systems out there. And every one of them was developed by some sort of expert or some sort of uber-productive person. And they don't always agree. They don't always complement one another. And so you have to try a little bit of this and try a little bit of that. You have to, to see which one helps you, which one actually makes you get through your day more efficiency, efficiently. One system isn't the best for, for everyone. Not, not everyone's circumstances are the same. And so we pick and we, we choose how we will organize our days. And many people believe that, that religion is the same way. There have been any number of spiritual experts throughout human history, and each one developed their own system. It's good to hear what they have to say, but ultimately you must decide what works for you. And what works for you may not be what works for someone else. There isn't one system that is best. I'm sure you've heard that way of thinking. It's the, it's the way of the world today. It's the, it's the common assumption. What we need to see this morning is that the author of Hebrews simply does not agree. The question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, clearly tells us that he sees the gospel as the way, as the one true religion. He is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't simply one option for you to consider. It is the option you must take. There will be consequences, eternal consequences, if you drift away from this gospel. You will not escape if you neglect this salvation. That is the author's point. That is the, the ground of his appeal. The question is, is he right? Is he right? Is the gospel the way? Is the gospel the salvation that we must not neglect? I think it's probably the, the most important apologetic question of our day. 
We're using Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, in Sunday School right now. And, and in that book, he addresses seven significant questions, seven common objections that are, that are raised to the Christian faith. And the number one objection, the, the first objection that he addresses is, is the objection that says there can't be just one true religion. It is simply incomprehensible to people today. It is, it is impossible for them to believe that, that one religion got it right. And if we were talking about man-made religions, I would understand. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion made by man. But rather, it is a religion spoken to us by the Son of God himself. And so while today people wonder, can there really be one true religion? While, while many continue to wrestle with that question, why well, I suspect that many of you have wrestled with that question, and, and some of you probably are still wrestling with that question. I want you to hear from the author of Hebrews this morning as he shows us why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the salvation you must not neglect. He's going to do that by, by offering us three evidences or, or three proofs of its singular greatness. First, he tells us that it was declared by the Lord himself. Second, he, he tells us that it was attested to by eyewitnesses who were publicly validated by God through signs and wonders and various miracles. And third, he tells us that it was attested to us through gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Three Evidences. And in order for us to, to better know and believe the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might grow in our assurance of the singular greatness of this salvation, I want us to consider each of these. And it's actually going to take us two weeks to do that. Uh, so you can just relax a little bit. We're going to look at the first two this morning. And then we'll take the third one next Sunday. So let's begin where he does. Begin with the first evidence. The author says that the greatness of the gospel is seen first in that it was declared by the Lord himself. And when you're dealing with people who have questions, when you're dealing with, with people who have doubts, you, you can't get through a single sentence without addressing a, a problem. Because there are many today who will not even concede this initial point. A few years ago, a professor named Bart Ehrman published a, a book titled Misquoting Jesus. And as you can probably guess from the title, his, his hypothesis was that the Bible is, is the product of the 2nd, 3rd, even 4th century church, and therefore is not a reliable account of, of what Jesus actually did and said. And of course, that hypothesis wasn't new with, with Ehrman. It's the hypothesis that, that drove the 1st, 2nd, and even 3rd so-called quest for the historical Jesus. You see, for, for centuries... Scholars have been questioning the reliability of the Gospels that we have in our Bibles. For, for centuries, they have been suggesting that the Christ of faith has little to do with the, the Jesus of, of history. The, the Christ of faith is, is the product of the church. The Jesus of history was just some man who, who lived in the first century. So not everyone is willing to concede that the Gospel was, in fact, declared by the Lord Himself. But I would humbly suggest to you this morning that their doubts reveal far more about their own worldviews, far more about their own presuppositions, far more about their own biases 
than they do about the actual historical data. Contrary to the skeptics' opinions expressed so loudly, I would suggest to you that the historical record actually tells us that the, the four Gospels we have are a highly reliable record of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that they tell us that Jesus was right. We'll have to come to that question in a moment. But the historical record tells us that the Gospels are actually a, a good record of what Jesus did and, and taught. As Christians, we do not need to be scared of the skeptic's questions. Obviously, I do not have time this, this morning to present before you all of the data, but, but many men better equipped than me have done that in books and in essays and, and in, in all kinds of, of journal articles. And you can research it for yourself, and I would encourage you to do so. As a Christian, you do not need to be scared of your questions. You do not need to be scared of the scholars. Look at the evidence. Look at, look at what it actually suggests, and I am convinced that if you do, you will see that indeed, yes, this gospel was proclaimed at first by the Lord. But as I said, that leaves us with a question. Given, assuming, that the gospel was in fact proclaimed by the Lord, why is that evidence of its greatness? Why is that evidence of its, of its singularity, of its, of its truth as the one true religion? Even if you concede the point, how does it demonstrate the claim that our author is making regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, to answer that question, we must go back to the point that the author has already made in, in chapter 1. Look back with me at the opening paragraph of, of chapter 1. You'll, you'll remember that the author tells us that God has now spoken through His Son, he then describes the Son in this almost incomprehensible language. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He is the sustainer of all things. And He is the one who now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we studied these statements almost a month ago now, you you saw that they were arranged in what we call a chiasm. That is, the, the first statement corresponds to the last, and the second statement corresponds to the second to the last, and the third corresponds to the third to last. We, we in other words, have, have three sets of parallel statements. And so beginning in the middle, the, the middle pair tells us that the author thought that the man Jesus of Nazareth, that, that flesh and blood man, the, the son of, of Joseph and Mary, he believed him to be fully God. The radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And moving out from there, not only did he believe him to be God in his being, but he believed him to be the one who did the works of God. He tells us that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. But not only is he God doing the works of God, he is also the redeemer of God. He is the one who comes to save sinners. We, we see this in the first and, and last statement taken together. He describes Jesus first as the heir of all things. And secondly, as the one who now sits at the right hand of, of God. And in saying that, he is describing Jesus as the one who has dominion over creation. And that is significant 
Because you must remember that, that it was mankind created in God's image, male and female, who were created for that position, who were created to have dominion. And so when, when the author tells us that, that Jesus is the one who has now assumed that position, he is telling us that Jesus is the one who can restore mankind to the position for which he was created. He is the one who can rescue him from the, from the catastrophe of his sin and bring him back into right relationship with the one true God. And we know that he's talking about Jesus' role as Redeemer because notice... This is a position that Jesus assumed in space and time. He was always, from eternity, God, but in time he became the Savior. In time he was appointed to be the heir. In time he sat down at the right hand of the Father. When did he do this? When did these things happen? Verse 3 tells us, after making purification for sins. So after making purification for sins, Jesus became our powerful Savior. He became the one who can restore us to the position for which we were created. But notice he did this after dying upon the cross, after offering his life as a, as a ransom for many. That tells us that the, the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. It tells us that he rose again on the third day. It was on that day of resurrection that he was appointed to be the heir of all things, even as Paul also echoes in Romans chapter 1. So the author believes that Jesus is the Savior because Jesus died upon a Roman cross and then rose again victorious over death and sin. And it's only because he knows this to be true of the Son, only because he knows this to be true of Jesus, that he can say these things about him. Think about it. If, if, if he had not risen again, he would not be saying these things about Jesus of Nazareth. If he, if he was not now living, if he was not now seated at the right hand of the Father of the Majesty on high, no one would regard him as the one who comes to save people from their sins. And so the author says, listen, the first evidence of the greatness of this salvation is that it was declared to us by the Son of God himself who in space and time took on human flesh, lived under the law, and then offered his life as a ransom to those who were condemned by the law. The one who became our substitute, the one who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who has declared to us this salvation. And therefore, it is a singular salvation. It is a salvation we must not neglect. In a sense, that ought to be enough. In a sense, he, he could have stopped there. If God has spoken it through His Son then we must receive it. You see, the author knows that, that the Hebrews to whom he writes, they didn't hear Jesus for themselves. They, they weren't there when, when Jesus died and, and rose again. And so he graciously offers them a second proof. And the second evidence of the greatness of the Christian faith, the second evidence of the greatness of this salvation, he says, is that it was attested to us by those who heard. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. 
Even Paul himself, who was, who was not there during Jesus' earthly ministry, was nevertheless an, an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord because he met him on the road to Damascus. And so again, it is simply not true that the Christian gospel was formulated generations later by people who never heard or saw Jesus. If you take a class at a modern university, you might hear that. But it is not fact. It, it is not the way that the history unfolded. The, the Hebrews had received the gospel from the people who had heard it from Jesus' own mouth. And what I want you to recognize about your position this morning is that the same thing is true of you. Obviously, we are more than one generation removed from Jesus' ministry, but the record of Jesus' ministry which is the foundation of our faith, this this scripture, this canon that we say is our final authority in all questions of faith and practice, it is one generation removed from Jesus. The gospel was attested to the Hebrews by those who heard, and through their writings it has been attested to us by those same eyewitnesses. For their words have been faithfully passed down from one generation to the next. But of course there's still a question. There's still a question of of how how do we know those eyewitnesses got it right? Eyewitnesses aren't always reliable and they're certainly never infallible. So how do we know that that the gospel that they proclaimed was indeed the gospel that Jesus intended them to proclaim? Well, notice, the author gives us a reason. He says, not only were they eyewitnesses, but they were eyewitnesses validated by God himself. Look again at verse 4. The author says, it was attested to us by those who heard, and then immediately had, while God also bore witness. And how did God bear witness? By signs and wonders and various miracles. So God himself bears witness to the reliability of the gospel proclaimed by those who's heard through signs and wonders and and miracles. How did the Hebrews know that the gospel attested to them by the people who heard was, was reliable? Because God publicly validated their testimony. He witnessed to their reliability. God doesn't leave us to guess, and he never has. He publicly validates those who speak for him. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it at the very beginning with with Moses. You remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he was sending him to Egypt to go and speak to Pharaoh. Do you you remember Moses' question? He, He rightly wondered, why will anybody believe that I speak for you? Why will anybody believe that I speak for the one true and, and living God? And in response to Moses' question, God gave him signs. Signs that would show that this one speaks for the living and true God. Similarly, at the end of Moses' ministry, when, when Moses is about to be taken away, the, the people wonder, how will God lead us? How will we know who the the next chosen one is? And Moses promises them that that God will raise up for them a prophet like himself. 
And of course the people want to know, but, but how will we know who he is? How will we recognize him? How will we know that this one is in fact the prophet? And again, God gives them signs. He says first that a, a true prophet will, will never contradict anything that had been spoken previously. A true prophet will not entice them to go in a new direction or to go after other gods. But not only will he remain faithful to what has been revealed, his future revelations will be reliable. They will come to pass. The words that he speaks will be fulfilled because they are the very words of God. But think about that. If it is the reliability of a prophet's words that validate him to his contemporaries, then they can't be talking about long-term predictions. It can't be Isaiah predicting that 700 years from now a virgin will give birth. It must be those predictions that they saw fulfilled even in their own lifetimes, even in their own immediate present. It is Elijah saying that it will not rain, and it does not rain. It is Elisha saying that the axe head will float, and the axe head Floats. It is the king or the prophet saying that the king will be dead before the end of the year and it coming to pass just as the prophet said. These short-term predictions, they were signs given by God to validate those who speak for him. So that even in the days of the apostate kings, there was no doubt who the prophets of the Lord were. Ahab, who didn't like the prophets at all, still knew who they were and still could say, I don't like them very much, but yeah, this one speaks for the Lord. People of God knew who the prophets of the Lord were. They knew who spoke for the Lord because God did not leave his people to guess. He validated them. He, he demonstrated that this one speaks for me. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. The, the miracles, the, the signs and the wonders and the, the powers. They pointed to this one speaks for the Lord. And it's vital that we remember this. It's, it's, it's common today for people to think, well, it's not that important to believe in the miracles. You know, they were those first century people. They were, they were a little bit, you know, credulous. They, they were a little bit gullible. They, they believed in miracles. We know better today, but we still take the teachings. No. Those miracles were God's witness that this one speaks for me. And because God validated those who spoke, it means that God's people have never been left to guess who speaks the very words of God. And that means that the words of the prophet, the words of the apostle, they were received as the very words of God the moment they were spoken, the moment they were written down. Paul tells us this in, in Thessalonians. He says, I thank God that you received my teaching, not as the mere words of men, but as it really is, as the very word of God. Even as Paul wrote his letters, he knew he was writing the word of God. And even as those letters were being received, the people knew they were receiving the very word of God. You simply, uh, the words of the apostles and the prophets were, were never voted on later and given that status. Words that were not received as the very words of God, the moment that they were written, the moment that they were spoken, could never later be declared to be. They were either received as such from the beginning or they were never received at all. 
Yes, sometimes. There was debate about whether the original audience had good reason to believe. And, and so there were debates in the early church. But the debate was always whether this ought to have been received. It was never, ought we to give this document that's never been thought of as the word of God before, authority. Why? Because God never left his people to guess who speaks for him. God bears witness with the witnesses through signs and wonders. God tells us, this one speaks for me. And therefore, our faith in this word as not a man-made religion, not a religion made by man, but our faith in this word as the very word of God rests upon a sure foundation. It rests upon a solid rock. We have good reason to believe that these are the very words of God because they have been received as such from the very beginning. And an unbroken chain of one generation teaching the next has passed down that word from the beginning. And so, yes, we believe that, that these are the very words of God, that this is the great salvation that we must not neglect. As I said, there's a third evidence here as well. We'll, we'll look at that next Sunday. But, but for now, just hear this. In these scriptures, we have the gospel. The gospel proclaimed by the Lord himself and delivered to his church by men publicly validated by extraordinary displays of God's power. And therefore, we have every reason to believe that this is the gospel of God. As Paul says in Galatians, it is not man's gospel. It is not a gospel man made up. It is not a system formulated by man to, to, to live your best life. It is not one option among many. This is the gospel of God. And we neglect it to our peril. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We must set our minds on this gospel. We must dwell upon it. We must let it dwell in us. We must let it teach us and correct us and rebuke us when necessary. We must let it shape us and teach us the truth that we might have life. For the life of God is in his word and is not found elsewhere. If we walk away from this when it gets hard, we walk away from life. But if we will believe these words, if we will receive these words, if we will rest upon the one revealed in these words, then we will be saved. Eternal life will be ours, and an inheritance in the coming kingdom is guaranteed. And because all of this is ours through faith in the Son, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Father, that in your grace, you did not leave us to guess who speaks for you but that you witnessed alongside your witnesses through signs and wonders. Father, give us the humility. Give us the humility to receive their words as they are, as the very words of God, that by them we might have life.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.